So open up to Romans chapter 1. I guess I'm a little bit lacking sleep like all of you. I'm just, hey, you're all here. So right there, you're like amazing Christians right there. So for being here, <laughs> Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25 is what we're looking at this morning. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, that's page 883. While you're turning over, you know, we've all heard similar statements, and, and maybe you even, even had said it yourself before you became a Christian, things along the lines of, I can't worship a God that has wrath, or I couldn't believe in a God who would actually send people to hell. And I've heard statements like that. Again, you may have said statements like that yourself. And to even suggest things like that in our current culture can be offensive to some sensibilities. And of course, this isn't anything new for the last century and a half. Liberal pastors like Harry Emerson Fosdick, who was basically, for those of you who don't know who that is, and is the, was the Oprah Winfrey, the Deepak Chopra, the Joel Osteen before those people ever existed. So liberal pastors and philosophers like Bertrand Russell were saying these kinds of things, that there couldn't be a god of wrath or anger. Fosdick, who was a very well-known pastor in the Manhattan area of the early 20th century, taught that primitive man had a devilish concept of God. Noah's God, for example, destroyed the earth with a flood. Flood. Abraham's God was a tyrant, a bloodthirsty tyrant who wanted human sacrifice. The God of Moses was hor a horrible God of volcanic fire speaking to him from Sinai. But little by little, the concept of God got better and had advanced as the centuries rolled on. By the time we get to King David, God had more of a higher ethical standard but they were mixed with terrible imprecatory psalms in which David would call down wrath on his enemies. Fosdick would say by the time of the prophets, God was really improving. He now hated unrighteousness and spoke out against injustice. And when Jesus came along, the idea of God took on a marvelous concept of fatherhood, which was the best concept of that time. But Jesus also had the repugnant idea of hell. And Fosdick said that this idea has to be abandoned for this upward uh, curve to continue. Now, of course, Fosdick was just giving voice to the, the popular ideas then, both religious and secular, that a God, a loving God, cannot also be a God of judgment nor a God of wrath. Bertrand Russell, in his very famous book, Why I Am Not a Christian, says exactly the same thing. Now, at one level, we can understand why people are uncomfortable with a God that expresses wrath, why a wrathful God might make us uncomfortable. But think about it for a moment. What would it say about a God who never expressed anger, a God that did not have wrath? Now, if you want a quick answer to that question, just, just, just think of the question but slightly different. What would it say about a nation or an individual today who wasn't incensed over what Russia is doing to Ukraine. If wrath is concerning to us, apathy is more so concerning, right? So we understand wrath. The question has to do for its justification, and that's where we have to make sure we are aligning ourselves with what God's Word actually teaches. And so for that, I want us to read what God's Word says on this. So if you have a Bible, would you open up to Romans chapter 1? You're probably there. Stand with me. I'm going to read verses 18, uh, and actually I'm going to read it down to verse 25, although I know in the bulletin I said to 23, but we're going to take it a couple verses after that. Romans 1 verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. To begin our time this morning, I want us to think about what we mean by the words wrath and anger as it relates to God. It's very important that we have a clear understanding of this, or we will misunderstand everything we're talking about this morning. And so what I want to do is, before I jump into the meat of the sermon, you might say, is I want to make three brief points of what we mean when we talk about wrath and anger. Number one, in the, in, in the Greek, like in English, there are a lot of words you can use for anger. For example, Greek has the word thumos, where we get our English word uh, thermos, and it's referring to a red-hot kind of anger, uh, a passionate, expulsive, almost impulsive kind of anger, an anger that kind of grips people, and you might fly off the handle. Another Greek word for anger is the word orge, and that's the word actually used in the text behind our English translation this morning, and it is very different than thumos. It's, it is not an impulsive, explosive anger as much as it is a, a settled state of affairs, a kind of uh, uh, orientation to an action such that if you commit that action, you now are in the line of that kind of a state of affairs. It's something that is uh, just the reality of what it is. It's, it's not something that all of a sudden grips somebody. It's just something that you know is wrong, and you're angry towards that action. A case in point, when my children were young, we had a standing rule in the house because we knew the concept of what could happen, and the standing rule was, don't poke your sister in the eye. If you do that, this is the consequence, because it happened enough, we had a standing rule. Another one was, don't choke your brother by the throat. You do these things, and you now put yourself in a realm where our displeasure, you're going to feel that, right? That's the concept here. It wasn't a all of a sudden anger that grips an individual so much as a, a settled state of, of, of affairs towards a certain kind of action that such if you commit that action, you are now going to experience this orge, this kind of anger, this kind of wrath. Secondly, God's wrath here in Romans is the counterpart to God's righteousness. It is no coincidence that in chapter or verse 17, we hear of the righteousness of God and then immediately the wrath of God in, because in order for God to be good, He cannot abide evil. In order for God to be just, He cannot abide injustice. In order for God to be righteous, He cannot abide unrighteousness. And so God's wrath and God's righteousness are parallel concepts. In other words, you cannot have one without the other. As a loving husband, I hate anything that will seek to harm my wife. That doesn't mean I'm bipolar. That doesn't mean I'm completely different. That doesn't mean that's contrary to my nature. It is an expression of my love to be wrathful towards anything that would hurt the object of my love. We understand that concept, and that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Third point here, notice the objects of God's wrath. 
God's wrath is not revealed to good things, to beautiful things, to righteousness. The text clearly says it's revealed against wickedness. He is not some fickle deity that just flies off the handle and thumps anyone who happens to be in the room when he gets upset. No, his wrath is geared, is targeted, is aimed towards particular objects and actions. And as we'll see in our text this morning, Paul gets very specific about the objects or the people that are under God's wrath. And as he does this, what we are going to find is that we get kind of an an anatomy of unbelief. Now, our text this morning is a reminder to all of us, religious, irreligious, Christian or not, how desperate humanity is for God's grace because we are being exposed to the reality of our, de- our, our, our self-deception and our sinfulness. And so this morning, we'll look at the anatomy of unbelief. I know in your bulletin, it says the anatomy of doubt, and that's because I had to give a title for the sermon Thursday afternoon, but by Friday afternoon, I changed my mind. And, and, and that's because doubt is not necessarily a wrong thing. Because doubt means you're wrestling with things, you're you're fighting through, you're trying to understand things, and and we encourage that kind of wrestling here at this church. It's okay to doubt, right? Poor Thomas, Doubting Thomas. He's already known as Doubting Thomas, but he wanted to know truth, and he, he wasn't certain, and there was doubt. Doubt can be a good thing. But I change it to unbelief because unbelief is a closed understanding. You're no longer wrestling through to find truth. You've already just made up your mind. And so I changed that. So that's why it says the anatomy of unbelief. And what we're going to look at this morning is the mind of unbelief, the heart of unbelief, and then finally the hands and feet of unbelief if time permits. So let's look at the first one, the mind of unbelief in verses 18 to 20. As I said, notice on the heels of Paul's really excited proclamation of the righteousness of God, we also, in the gospel, we immediately turn to hear about the wrath of God and what a stark contrast they are. You would at least expect in Paul's writing, there would be the conjunction, but or however, the wrath of God is revealed, but that's not what we get. Notice in your Bible, the conjunction is the word, the way Paul links verse 17 and 18 is with the conjunction for. And similar in the, in the English language, the, the, the word that's behind the English for in Greek is the word gar, and it usually introduces a reason or an explanation for the previous statement. In other words, it introduces the answer to the question that is implicit in verse 17. What is the question that is implicit in verse 17? So let's look at verse 17 to refresh your memory. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. What is the implicit question that's in that verse that verse 18 answers? And the question is this, why is the righteousness of God manifested or revealed and can only be appropriated by faith and through faith, verse 18 says, because look at the mess that we have done, the crimes we've committed against the glory of God. That can be the only reason God reveals righteousness through faith, because the wrath of God is coming, because look how we have sinned against God's glory. Now, the key to that understanding is at the very end of verse 18. Look at verse 18. You see it there. 
It's that prepositional phrase, who by their unrighteousness, speaking of humanity, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Think about that. The, The problem, friends, of humanity isn't that we don't know about God. It's very clear in the text. It's not that we don't know God. It's that we don't want to know about God. It says it right there, we suppress the truth. It's kind of like Mark Twain says, the problem with the Bible is not that it's unclear. The problem with the Bible is that it's painfully clear, and that is so true. The idea here in verse 18 of suppression is a continual, aggressive stance against the truth. It's kind of like that individual that says, look, I've got my mind made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. I don't want to know anymore. I've got my mind made up. So the question we have to ask is, what is the truth that people continually seek to suppress? And verse 20 provides us the answer. His eternal power and divine nature that is known to all. These have been made known to all. They're very clear. How do we know that they're very clear? Verse 19 answers that question. God Himself has made it clear in the creation. So the result in verse 20, the end of verse 20, is that all of humanity is without excuse. In other words, what Paul is saying is that, look, we know, humanity knows of God's existence. You cannot look at a sunrise or a sunset and not say there must be a God of power and beauty. There must be something there. Now, what Paul is not saying, that just by looking at the creation, there's a full theology of God and His redemptive grace that is known to humanity. That's not what Paul is saying. But at least His majestic and transcendent power and and His sustaining ability as Creator is clear by just looking at creation. Now, theologians and philosophers for centuries have used what's been called the teleological argument. This is the teleological argument from the Greek word telos, which means uh, maturity or perfection or completion or something being finished. Telos, that, that there is a finely tuned system that we live in, and the teleological argument says you can look at the world and notice by its design that this cannot be accidental. There must be some mind behind this world. In fact, the world-renowned philosopher and atheist Anthony Flew, who was a contemporary of Bertrand Russell, switched from a lifetime and a career built on and the conviction of atheism to deism based on the teleological argument, arguments from design. And Flew absolutely shocked the philosophical world, the academic world, and everyone in his 2007 book when he came out with, oops, oh, I just lost the momentum, right? Because there I'm like, there it is. His book entitled, There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Now, obviously, I'm not sure how many of you ever studied philosophy, but, but this was the most astounding confession that came out in 2007, so much so that everyone was scrambling to somehow deny, even the New York Times said, it's probably that Flu was struggling with advanced senility, that's why he wrote this book. 
I don't think people who are struggling with senility can write a complex book like this one. Flew said, one cannot look at the finely tuned nature of reality without recognizing there is a mind, a God behind this. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying, and I want you to say, Anthony Flew became a Christian. That's not what happened. But he switched from atheism to deism. And as far as I know, in talking to a friend, he never quite crossed the line to understand that it was Jesus Christ. But just going from atheism to deism was a massive shift. Centuries before flew, noting the order and design of our universe, Johann Kepler, the founder of modern astronomy, the discoverer of the three planetary laws of motion, said this, the undevout astronomer must be mad. Millennia before Kepler and flew, King David of Israel saying this in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Friends, you notice all four of those verbs? Declare, proclaim, pours out, reveals. Creation itself is literally screaming that there is a creator. And Paul is saying, and we are without excuse. If we just open our eyes and open our ears, we know of his power and his divinity. Now, it's been no secret um, in our last probably century and a half, we have been struggling in our society with the debate between evolution and creation. I have a friend who is an apologist for creationism, and he goes around the country talking about creationism as opposed to evolution. A good friend of mine named Frank, some of you in Alathia know him. And I actually told him, I said, Frank, I, I think you've given away too much of the farm in having this conversation, right? He talked, said, what are you talking about? I said, I, I think the debate, you're talking about evolution, but the problem is, you're assuming that we can just easily have a planet that has the necessary and sufficient factors to allow evolutionary life to evolve. You've given away the form. You first, you first have to tell your opponents, justify how you even have a planet that can then allow for complex carbon life to evolve. So in other words, you need to be talking about how do we even have a planet sufficient to allow an evolutionary process to begin. Because according to doctors Ward and Brownlee, two leading astrobiologists in their book, Rare Earth, the odds of a planetary system capable of sustaining complex carbon life forms are infinitesimally small. They would say almost non-existent. Now, you would say, well, I say almost, almost. Well, that's because they're scientists. They never say anything definitively. As just one example, and we'll have to move on, in their book, Rare Earth, they give about 34 broad factors that are necessary for a, a, a planet to sustain carb, uh, complex carbon life. One example would be the massive gravitational pull of our Jovian-class planets. If you know, don't know what a Jovian-class planet is in our solar system, it's the four larger planets, Neptune, Saturn, Jup uh, Saturn Uranus, particularly Jupiter on the, on the far reaches of the solar system particularly Jupiter, with its massive gravitational pull literally sucking into itself, and all these other gas planets doing the same, all of the comets, asteroids, and meteorites that would normally come then and to crush Earth into cosmic space dust. When was the last time you ever thanked God in His infinitesimal wisdom to create Jovian-class planets so we wouldn't get crushed to space dust? 
And that's just one of the 34 factors necessary. Now, I'm not really good at math, uh, so, so I'm being very conservative in the factors. A lot of these factors are interrelated, so if you know mathematics, that interrelation exponentially makes it more challenging. And the fact that these factors have to be irreducibly complex. In other words, they cannot evolve simultaneously. They have to exist in their final forms or it just won't happen. It cannot evolve. But to wrap your minds around this, I've got an illustration. You probably can't see, but in this bag, I have 10 quarters, and they're all numbered with Roman numerals, 1 to 10. What are the odds that as I reach into this bag, I grab the number 1 first? What are the odds? 1 in 10. Okay. I've been doing this all weekend, and it's never worked yet. The closest I got was one in four. I gave up after like 15. What are the odds that as I put that coin back in after picking out the number one, I pick out the number two? What are the odds then, smart math people? One in what? No. You have to, it goes up by a factor of 10. The odds are then one in 100 that I pick out the number two. I still haven't gotten number one. If I point that coin back in and I try to get the number three, what are the odds I pick up the number three in proper sequence? One in 1,000. You get what I'm talking about. For me to pull out numbers one through 10 at random through this bag, for me to get one through 10 in order as I put each one back and grab the next one, is one in 10 billion. That's just 10 factors. Multiply that by 34 factors. And what are the odds that we even have a planet that can even now, now you can then start talking about the mathematics, statistical probability of complex carbon life accidentally evolving. So I told Frank, you've given away the farm. You get my point. And some people will say, yeah, well, but you know, statistically, and I, in, in apologetics, I always like to be gracious. You know, if you had a monkey hammering away on a laptop, sooner or later, they'll pop out Shakespeare. You've heard that argument. I've heard, I've heard it. And I will say, yeah, okay, at some point, that, that monkey may hammer out on a laptop and pump out Shakespeare. But how long will it take for that monkey to build the laptop? Let alone write the programming code of the word processing application he's using to hammer out Shakespeare. That's what we're talking about here. So at the heart of unbelief is this fact that we simply do not want to hear that there is a God out there above us. And we'll suppress it any way we can. And what we can't suppress, we will pervert. And that is the heart of unbelief in verses 21 to 23. Look back at the text. Verse 21, it's a really actually very scary passage of Scripture. For although they knew God, right? They can't deny it. He's there. Whatever they can't suppress, they're going to have to pervert. They knew God. They did not honor Him as God or gave thanks to him, but they became futile in their, under, in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They knew God. Humanity, we know God, but we choose otherwise. Friends, what's, what's amazing about this verse here is this verse shows the transfer from the worship of God and how it goes from that to idolatry and how that takes place. And it's this, they simply choose not to honor God or give him thanks. And I want to point something out in Scripture because we see this pattern happening enough times. Notice with me in the text, in verse 21, that they actively choose not to do something. So if you're looking at there, the verbs for not honoring God and the verbs for not giving him thanks are both active, uh, active tense. 
And so if you know anything about grammar, what does that mean? The subject does the action of the verb. They choose not to do this. They will not do this. But notice what the text says. The result is they became futile in thinking and darkened in their hearts, and the verb goes from active tense to passive tense, which means now the the action of the verb happens to the subject. What am I getting at? They chose not to do these things, and as a result, their thinking became futile and their hearts became darkened because they would not acknowledge God. They would not give Him thanks actively. Something happened to them. And this is found throughout Scripture. Let me show you another passage where Paul is talking to Timothy, and he's talking about this same concept of rejecting God's revelation and its consequence. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Let's look at the verbs in this text. Here they are, active verb, will not endure sound teaching. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to put up with it. Active verb, they will instead find people who will teach them what they want to hear, like a Bertrand Russell or a Harry Emerson Fosdick or a Deepak Chopra or an Oprah Winfrey, you name it. And they will turn away from the truth. And what's the result? They will wander into myths. That's the same word we use to describe the planets, or the ancients used to describe the planets because they thought the planets just wandered in the heavens. What's my point? The Bible teaches us, friends, that there is no neutrality when it comes to our relationship with God. You are either actively pursuing Him, desiring to hear His truth and live it out, or you will passively wander into error and deceit and may not even realize it. You are either actively honoring Him and giving Him thanks, or as Paul says back in Romans, you will become futile in your thoughts about Him and darkened in your love for Him. That's just the reality. Friends, the scary thing about what Paul is writing here, the scary thing is that when humanity rejects the truth of God, it's not that we won't believe in anything. It's that we will believe everything. I want to show you one picture that proves my point. That's not a man with a beer gut. That is the latest uh, emojis that Apple's releasing. In an article I read in Today's Parent last month, entitled... Uh, Apple. Yeah, okay, yes, I'm talking about you, Tim Cook, and Apple. Stop. Let me turn that on. Do not disturb. It is. Okay. In an article I read last month in Today's Parent, it led with this title, A Pregnant Man Emoji is Here and It's About Damn Time. Apple is set to release, this is the article, 37 new emojis, including two that are pregnancy-related. One features a pregnant man, the other features a pregnant person, both created to recognize that not all people who get pregnant are women. Now, I'm not a gynecologist, (laughs) but I'm pretty sure every single individual that's given birth was a woman. And, and I'm not trying to, to like be like funny, ha-ha, because this is happening in our culture. But do you see what I'm talking about? This is what Romans 1 is talking about. It doesn't get more clear than this. Now, if some of you have been like culturally aware, you might be thinking, no, no, Thomas Betty in 2008, that was the first pregnant man. He was clearly a man. Now, if you know about the debate back then, Thomas Betty was born Tracy Betty, 
She had gone through six operations to look like a man. And the, the pictures are out there. It's disturbing because she really looks like a man. But she kept her reproductive organs. No man gives birth. We all know this. But this is what happens when we reject truth. When we re it's not that we won't believe anything. It is that we will believe everything. And we see this dynamic back in our text here. Verse, um, look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise... They became fools. And here's the scary thing. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Notice the downward spiral. It doesn't get lower than the little creeping bugs. What is Paul saying? Friends, as human beings, you and I were designed to reflect glory. Humanity is the crown creation of God. And we share His glory as His image bearers. And when we reject that, we're going to reflect the glory of lesser things all the way down to disgusting things, is what Paul's getting at. In thinking we're going to live for ourselves and rejecting God, we're exchanging the glory we're supposed to have in reflecting Him to the glory of insects. So subhuman all the while claiming that humans are the best. It's a sad tragedy. So we see that man first suppresses the truth of God's greatness, then he perverts it by worshiping insulting images. In essence, getting rid of the, the knowledge and the image of God in our lives. As image bearers, we have to reflect something, some other image, and so we just reflect ourselves or the creation, and it degrades us as human beings. Humanism does not exalt human beings. It de degenerates them. It is the gospel that exalts human beings because it restores us to be our image, the true image bearers we are to reflect the glory of God. And here's where I'm going with that before we move on to the third point. Friends, we have to always keep before us. And as Christians, we have to always keep before us the glory of God above all things and His transcendence and, and His amazingness and His majesty. And I get it. People want to have bumper stickers that, that my best friend is a Jewish carpenter or stuff like that. We want to make Jesus just like us. But the reality, he's nothing like us. He is the Lord himself. And when we have that image, it captures us and it guides our lives. The question we have to ask, friends, is what image, what vision is capturing you? What image is, what vision captures your life? Because you will become the thing you worship. It'll either be the splendor of God Himself or these lesser, lower things. And they might be more abstract, power, money, relationships, but they all will degrade you. So that's the heart of unbelief. And finally, the hands and feet of unbelief. You see in verse 24, and we're just going to touch this because next week we'll really unpack it. Paul says, therefore, and right here's another grammatical clue. Whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask, what's it therefore, Right? Why did Paul write this? Because humanity has done all of these things, suppressed God's truth, preferred the fact that God alone should be worshipped, and we've worshipped less false, or go false gods. Now this happens. Now keep in mind, verses 18 to 23 is telling us merely why the wrath of God is being revealed. But starting in verse 24 and on, we see the how of God's wrath. We'll unpack that a lot more thoroughly next week. 
But let me just say this, this. three times in the, before this chapter ends, we hear the phrase, read the phrase, God gave them up. Or depending on your translation, God gave them over or God handed them over. Three times we will see this phrase next week. And basically it's that this God at some point will hand people over to the ever-increasing cycle of sin, unbelief, and consequences in their life. And that is a true tragedy. Let me conclude. Well, I've got some time. Um, yeah, I'm just, yeah, we got some time. Um, the final chapter of C.S. Lewis's masterpiece, The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the Last Battle, it's entitled. It's the very last book in the series. King Tyrion, the last king of Narnia, meets up. It's this last grand battle. Uh, he meets up with High King Peter and Edmund, and Lucy's there, and it's just this massive war that's taking place. And then they find themselves stumbling through a door, and they're in this beautiful field with trees and fruits that they're eating. And it's the, I love the way Lewis talks about it. It's, it's so sweet that whatever sweet fruit you might eat after eating that fruit would taste sour, so juicy that anything you would dr- eat here would be dry, just this beautiful picture of the eternal state. And they're celebrating. They're not sure what's quite happened yet, but they're all there talking, and they see in the distance the dwarves. Now, in the, in the Chronicle of Narnia, the dwarves were, had a precarious relationship to Aslan. Sometimes they supported them, but a lot of times they betrayed him. And there they are sitting in a circle, staring at one another, really scowl-looking faces. And Lucy, with her compassionate heart, says, let's go over, and, and the dwarves seem upset. Let's help them see this beautiful creation. So they all go over, and King Tyrion's talking to the dwarves, and the dwarves sit around saying, where's that voice coming from? And they're confused because they're sitting in this beautiful glen, and they say, well, we're right here. And the dwarves say, right where? We're right here. We, can't you see us? How can, we can't see you. you. How can you see us? We're in this horribly dark cave. I can't even see in front of my face. And they're confused. They're looking at each other. What's going on? And, and Lucy says, we're in a beautiful field. She picks a flower and brings it to one of the dwarves to smell, and he whacks her hand and says, how dare you put that donkey dung in my face? Why would you do that? And they're confused, and Aslan comes strolling up. Say, Aslan, what's wrong with the dwarves? And Aslan says, they've chosen unbelief. They they can't see a different reality. They've consistently lived this way, and nothing we can do will change them. Watch. And Aslan makes this beautiful feast. And the dwarves start fighting. They say, oh, there's food in the cave. And they start wrestling for it. And they start eating these beautiful chickens and roasts and, and fruits and goblets of wine. And they start spitting it out. They say, who gave us this rotting food from the donkey trough and this water? They spit out the wine and say, this is stale water. It's polluted. And nothing that they could do could convince these dwarves they were tasting delicious food in a beautiful glen. They were trapped in a dark, dank cave eating putrid, rotting food. And Aslan says this, they have chosen deceit instead of belief their whole long lives. Their prison is only in their minds, yet they are in that prison. And so afraid of being taken in, they can never be taken out. Friends, if we consistently fight against God's truth and we rebel against it, there will come a point you can see nothing else. And even though they might be sitting in a beautiful glen with delicious food and wine, they will only see darkness and putrid, rotting food. That's a beautiful picture of what's happening in the world. That is the anatomy of unbelief. And if you are here, and if you have not crossed over that line, you still have an opportunity to make a different choice. But let me conclude by wrapping up one loose thread. 
We know that God's wrath is being revealed now, where we read that. We know from our study of the book of Revelation that God's wrath in its fullest form is still yet to come. But there is one sense in which God's wrath is absolutely complete. It's done. And it is this, that the wrath of God and the righteousness of God are parallel concepts. And we see them both displayed in their absolute beauty in the cross upon which Jesus died. In the Gospels, we read that upon Christ, the full, unmitigated wrath of God came down upon Christ, wave after overwhelming wave, so much so that the physical creation shook with earthquakes and went dark, the Gospels tell us. The very reason Christ went to that cross was because the only thing that matches the justice of God from which His just wrath extends is the love of God from which His boundless grace extends. So that in one and the same act of Christ's death on the cross, God's wrath could be satisfied and God's righteousness could be provided. So Paul says in verse 17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith for faith because in the gospel, the wrath of God has been satisfied and both of these accomplished by Jesus Christ. The only question is, will we embrace him as our substitute upon that cross? And part of, the, part of the process of that embracing is recognizing he is my substitute. In other words, I should be there. This is how it works. If I embrace Christ as my Lord and as my substitute, then I receive God's righteousness and I avoid God's wrath because it was all poured out on him and it is complete. But if I reject Christ as my Lord and the implications of what it means to live for Him and reject Him as my substitute, then I receive God's wrath and I avoid God's righteousness. We have the opportunity. And this is not a one-time decision. It is a decision that we do every day. I'm not saying your salvation is dependent upon that at every moment. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying because of our fallen propensity for self-deception, this is a decision we have to make every day. Are you my substitute, Jesus? Am I receiving your righteousness, avoiding your wrath, or am I going to reject you as Lord is my life? That's something we have to decide. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and thank you for, as Greg said, the fact that we can hear your word And maybe it strikes fear in our hearts. That's a good thing because we're listening, and it ought to. But it should also strike hope in our hearts because this is exactly why Jesus Christ lived and died. Because what we have done, we have perverted your truth. We have suppressed your truth. We have destroyed, done everything. We fought against it. And yet in your grace, you continue to pursue us. Your goodness and mercy continues to follow us. And we see it supremely in, in the gospel call. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that they would not reject the gospel call, that they would not be so full of their own self-righteous pride and think they don't need this, nor would they be so beaten down by a self-loathing fear they would think they they can't ever receive this, but they would realize it is grace that decimates our pride because we don't deserve it, and it's grace that abolishes our fear because it reminds us of how much loved we are. 
Lord, may us be a people that relish in the grace of God because of what Jesus has done, and we'll thank you in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.